The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, host of the Real Chemistry Podcast and Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry. And today, not only do we have a special guest in the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, but also a special guest host who is my colleague, our founder and chairman, Jim Weiss, who you've heard a number of times before. And one could argue there's no better time to be talking to someone like Jonathan, given all that's going on in the world with um, the activities in Avaldi, Texas, and other places where hate crimes and just sort of abominable activities in general are taking place. During the show today, you're going to get to hear a little bit about Jonathan's book, uh, Why America is Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable and How We Can Stop It. And we're going to talk a little bit about sort of how he came to be the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League as a guy that's a serial entrepreneur, very interesting journey, uh, how we should be thinking about things, uh, talked a little bit about healthcare and what the importance of getting rid of misinformation, disinformation is, um, who some of his role models are, uh, some very interesting examples. So please take a minute to listen in. I guarantee that you'll enjoy this. It's a fascinating conversation and, as I mentioned, couldn't be more important. Thanks, Jonathan, for being part of our podcast. We really appreciate your time. Listen, as CEO of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, um, maybe for our listeners who are not as familiar with the organization and its mission, why don't we take a second and hear from you uh, about what the ADL is all about today? I think probably people may have some preconceived notions. Tell us a little bit about you and the organization today and the mission. Well, so the ADL is the oldest anti-hate organization in the country. It was founded in 1913, right around the time that a Jewish man, Leo Frank, was lynched in the American South. He was falsely accused of a crime, wrongly convicted, and ultimately hung from a tree, torn from his jail cell by a mob. And while the body still was swinging from the rope, the whole town gathered around, barbecued, held a picnic underneath the corpse. They took pictures of it and converted them into souvenirs and gave postcards and gave them out as souvenirs. So in that moment, that wretched moment in American history, the ADL was founded. And what was interesting about the ADL from its inception, again, almost 110 years ago, is the mission statement that its founders wrote. They declared that the organization would, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. So I pause there to call attention to it, Jim, because today in our world of social justice, and intersectionality. I think most people think that all of these struggles are connected. But in the year 1913, it was an audacious and bold proposition for the American Jewish community, which itself was so weak, was so vulnerable, 
didn't have resources, didn't have influence, didn't have standing, was legally uh, discriminated against, culturally marginalized, and so on, for them to say that we will fight for ourselves and fight for others, and that Jewish people can only be free when everyone is free, that was an outrageous claim. And yet that duality of fighting anti-Semitism in all forms of hate has been the driving force behind ADL for well over 100 years. So ADL made America a better, safer, more tolerant you know, society for its Jewish community. And ADL has fought for civil rights for African-Americans, for fought against anti-immigrant xenophobia, fought against homophobia and transphobia, fought against anti-Muslim bias. ADL has been at the forefront of making America a better and safer place for all of its people. And today we basically do that through three things. So number one, we investigate, we track hate crimes and anti-Semitic incidents. Our analysts have been tracking anti-Semitic acts for more than 40 years. We've been looking at this kind of information for longer than the FBI. And so we have people who 24 seven on the public web, on the private web, on the dark web, in person, as well as online, are tracking extremists and sharing the information with law enforcement. Last year, we gave over 1,300 tips with law enforcement to try to avert hate crimes before they happened. And we educate them. We educated over 19,000 law enforcement officers in 2021. We educate the FBI every year in Quantico, the whole NYPD. We do a lot of that work. So number one, we investigate. Number two, we advocate. We try to change laws in the courts or in Congress. We also litigate or press our case in the court of public opinion, all about defending the Jewish people and other minorities, whether we're challenging the social media companies, whether we're pushing federal or state or local legislators, we try to make America a safer place for all people. So we investigate, we advocate, and finally we educate. ADL believes that the best antidote to intolerance is education. Literally, that is how we inoculate our population, by helping young people understand that there's a different way of seeing the world than one framed by hate. We need to share hope. So ADL is one of the largest providers in America of anti-bias, anti-hate content in schools. In 2021, we were somewhere between 3.5 and 4 million school children received anti-bias content from ADL. So the last thing I'll just say is that we have a pretty large footprint. We have 25 regional offices across the country. We're really a retail organization that's on the ground in communities, working with the victims of hate crimes, working with elected officials and policymakers, working with teachers and administrators, parents and their families, ultimately make America a more tolerant place for all of its people. So we shouldn't think about it as just for Jewish people, it's pretty broad in its remit, right? You're helping um, law enforcement, schools and education around AAPI issues, which are heightened today. You know, we've seen what happened in New York, yeah. but you also, I assume, had some hand in helping that Texas synagogue prepare for the event that actually they were able to avert um outside dallas right i think that's an example yeah. some of your i mean that was a really humbling and heartening moment when look 
when that happened, Jim, we got, I mean, it happened around like two o'clock, I think. I think we got a call maybe 132 o'clock about the hostage taking. Interestingly, law enforcement called us because the fellow who runs our law enforcement program, we recruited him out of the FBI. He used to run domestic extremism investigations at FBI headquarters in DC. He's one of the leading experts in the country. He spent 22 years with them. Now he works for ADL. So he got a call from his colleagues who said, we're tracking something. We need your help. Funny enough, Jim, our analysts were already seeing it because the hostage taking was being, whether it was on Signal and then it moved to YouTube, people were, were sharing on social media who were watching the live stream and saw it happen. And because we're tracking extremist channels, it immediately went there. So literally, I got a call around two that this was happening. By three o'clock, my whole executive team was on and the woman who runs our Dallas office was there on the ground at the command center right outside the synagogue because she knew the synagogue. Because as you said, Jim, we had trained the rabbi and his congregants on what to do in the event of this kind of situation. So literally, thankfully, and so our analysts evaluated the recordings. They heard what he was saying. They helped the FBI figure out who he was. Our staff was there consoling the families, you know, advising the law enforcement. And then he was freed, if you remember, late night, around 11.30, 12 on Saturday night. On Monday morning, when the rabbi did his first interview, first interview on CBS Morning News, he said, I just want to thank the FBI, law enforcement, and the ADL for the training that I got that saved my life and that of the other three people in the show. Yes, I noted that, and that's why I wanted to raise it, that ADL is is not a passive organization. It's very active in what's happening in the world. And, you know, I, I know since we set up our time to talk and, and schedule this, you know, we've seen Buffalo happen and Uvalde, which, again, I don't know if that's viewed as a hate crime in the same way that, say, um, the one in Buffalo is. But obviously, this all led all these types of incidents, the increasing incidents has led to this book that you wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it could happen here, you know, why America is tipping from hate to the unthinkable and how we can stop it. And I, I thought it'd be important for us to talk about what are active ways people can take. Um, you know, if you could take us through the title, where are we in terms of this tipping point? Are we there yet? It's kind of like our current market condition. Are we at the absolute bottom, you know, as recession here and all the rest? Um, Where are we in this situation? Well, look, so I wrote the book, started thinking about the book, Jim, you know, long before Buffalo or Colleyville. I think about a few years ago in the wake of the Pittsburgh shooting, like already that was in November 2018 or late October 2018. And I was just trying to think, you know, I need to kind of work through what I'm seeing here. I need to start putting pen to paper just to think this through. So I started working on a proposal or a treatment. And uh, then January 6th happened, which like I wrote the book, you know, evoking the title of Sinclair Lewis's book from the 1930s. It can't happen here is what he wrote. And that was kind of a satire based on what was happening in Germany at the time. But I wrote this book because unfortunately... I think it could happen here. And I think when people say, well, what's the it? I mean, the it is a violent insurrection 
with people marauding through the Capitol. By the way, Jim, I would say that was the most predictable terror attack in American history because they told us they were going to do it like literally the day before. You know, ADL analysts wrote a long blog post that we pushed out on Monday, two days before the actual attack, saying, here's who's coming. Here's what they're saying. I mean, it was all out there for us to know. And the reality is, though, I think sometimes we take for granted our democracy. We fail to appreciate its fragility. And look, I come to this work as the grandson of a Holocaust survivor from Germany. And my Jewish great-grandfather fought in the First World War for Germany. My Jewish grandfather never would have guessed when he was a young man, never would have imagined that one day the only country he ever knew and loved would destroy everything, render him an enemy of the state, kill his entire family and network of friends, and force him to come here as a young person. Never would have guessed. My father-in-law, my wife, her family, they are political refugees from Iran. My wife came here when she was like 17, maybe. And look, when she was a young girl, when my father-in-law was a young man, he never would have guessed that one day the only country he ever knew would turn on him, regard him as an enemy of the state, destroy everything he ever loved and force him and his family to flee and come here to America. So as I sit here today with you, I kind of, most of us, I think, could never imagine one day that this country would turn on us, destroy everything that we ever loved and force us to flee. But we are kidding ourselves if we think that this, what we have here is the natural state of affairs, you know, that it's willed by like, uh, you know, the, 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 the Earth's gravitational cycle or something. The reality is democracy is far more fragile than we appreciate. And that's really why I wrote the book, because I think this isn't a spectator sport. You got to be in it to win it. You got to be on the field, ready to play. If we want to keep, if we want to preserve the rights and privileges that we have here today. So let's get specific. I mean, do we pack our bags and flee or to your point, how do we get on the field? You know, what, what do people do? I don't want to say we, it's I, there's no worm in my pocket. You know, how do I and others who are listening to this get on the field? Sure. Well, to the first part of your question, like this was plan B for my grandfather in Germany. It's plan B for my wife coming from Iran. It's plan B for the Afghan or Ukrainian or other refugees. America is plan B for the world. So I would argue there is no plan B, if not this. Now, look, as Jews who for the state of Israel withstanding for a moment, for 2,000 years, we've lived in exile. And essentially, all of our um, exiles, if you will, our tenure in different countries has ended with either, you know, expulsion, conversion, or death. <laughs> like, pretty much, that's the story for 2,000 years from, from like, the Europe and the Middle East and North Africa. That's how it always ended. Flash forward to today, I think a lot of Americans just take for granted what we have. I think you forget, but yes, you have to be on the field. So what does it mean to be on the field? It can mean different things to different people. But number one, I think to paraphrase Sheryl Sandberg, you got to lean in, not lean back. 
So for some people being on the field might be volunteering. For some people being on the field might be voting. For some people being on the field might be getting involved and vying for political office. For some people being on the field might be donating, but it means agreeing to be part of this sort of covenantal process of democracy where we're willing to lend ourselves to a process not as a zero-sum game, I win, you lose, but as an extended game that we've got to play together. That means, you know, I, I mean this, like less polarization, less drama, a willingness to love thy neighbor. That sounds sort of religious. I don't mean it to be, but we are all in this together and democracy only works if we will recognize the humanity, even in those people with whom we don't agree. All right. So, you know, there seems to be, though, a pretty high tolerance for this violence and this, you know, conflict, you know, to address what have been long festering problems. Do you think the COVID fatigue, you know, has had an impact on on the rising hate? And, you know, are people just tired? I mean, I do hear things even in the stock market situation that people aren't even anxious, you know, as anxious about that as one would even like to see, because, you know, they're just so tired of, you know, a couple of years of this COVID nightmare. What, what do you think about that? Well, look, I think COVID. Hmm. So hate. I mean, it's worth reminding ourselves, I think hate existed, if you will, before Donald Trump. Um, it persi- will persist long after Donald Trump. Last this past uh, Saturday or Sunday, we had a bunch of white supremacists arrested in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, 31 people who piled into a U-Haul with the intent of creating a riot at a pride parade. These were members of a white supremacist group called the uh, Patriot Front. A few days before that, we had a man arrested in Washington, D.C., who, who, in his own words, wanted to assassinate Brett Kav- Justice Kavanaugh. And he had with him a gun and bullets and knives and duct tape and zip ties and so on and so forth. So political violence happens on the left, political violence happens on the right. Um, But I will say that COVID and extremism, neither end of the spectrum is exempt from intolerance, but COVID definitely both amplified and accelerated extremism in some ways. We've had, I mean, we saw crazy conspiracies, you know, the anti-vaxxer crowd, which existed before COVID, got lots of newfound momentum and sort of dovetailed with the armed militia anti-government crowd claiming that COVID-19 was a hoax, that the government was putting microchips in people's bloodstreams. I mean, it was or Bill Gates. It was all bananas. And yet this got some credence. And then also from the far left, some of whom thought this was some kind of weird capitalist or Jewish, by the way, plot, COVID-19. It was a bioweapon developed by the big pharma companies so they could profit off of them. And the fact that, you know, Regeneron and Pfizer headed by Jewish people cemented for some of the crazies that this was a Jewish plot, because why wouldn't it be? So, um, look, all that I think is very troubling, but extremists will exploit, Jim, you have to understand extremists exploit any opportunity they get. And I think we should also acknowledge that when systems fail, when You don't get the answers you're looking for from the market or from the government. People are susceptible, vulnerable to scapegoating. It becomes easy to blame when the things you expect to happen don't. When the solutions you were looking for fall short. 
and people are unwilling to accept responsibility. So it's easier to say, hey, it's that person's fault or that group's fault. So there's anti-Asian hate, anti-Jewish hate, anti-immigrant hate. We saw a spike of that during COVID. And I think the flip side is you asked about COVID fatigue. I do think some of our defenses were lowered because people were tired. People were retreating. People were putting their hands up. And, you know, look, we're only going to have safety, Jim, real safety with security and solidarity. It's not either or. It must be both and. And COVID challenged some of our basic norms of, again, security and solidarity and ways we hadn't seen before. Well, I think the other part of it was the isolation. You you get inside your head. You're not in groups. You're not sharing a beer or a meal or finding the commonalities that we can find. Do you think there's a potential, you know, emerging from this where people are getting back into normal flow of life, work, economy, where that opens the door again to at least meeting and, you know, you know, when you're isolated, it's a lot easier to do it. You talk about social and digital media being, you know, a big driver of this. We talk about misinformation and disinformation that fuels a lot of this. That's a little harder to do face to face. Right. So very much. So. What do you think about that? I totally agree with you. The reality is, look, again, there's always been hate. There's always been bullying. Trolling isn't new. It's sort of. Lenny Bruce invented that. I mean, look, like satire is part of American culture in many ways. But when you are not face to face with someone, when you are screen to screen, and when you have platforms like Twitter, let alone, you know, 4chan or 8chan or Discord or others or Reddit that thrive on anonymity, okay, it coarsens the conversation. And when you combine the anonymity, Jim, with the value of outrage, with business models, business models that reward, you know, a kind of ruckus. The more noise, the more you get hurt, the more outrageous, the more noise, the more you get hurt, the more noisy, the more outrageous, the more you get hurt, the more clicks you drive, the more you monetize. I mean, they, we always knew that if it, if it bleeds, it leads. But now if it bleeds, it leads. It reaches billions and billions of people on Facebook instantaneously. So I think the, you know, our, our cell phones, if you will, are a bit dehumanizing. They distance ourselves from real human interaction. If you will, the real chemistry that happens when two people are face-to-face, mano-a-mano. And the, the digital distance uh, is dehumanizing and I think lends itself to the kind of language and the kind of like mores you would never see in the real world. And that is a big part of the problem. So what do you want our audience to do, you know, the communicators, the marketers, the 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 people the platforms that we leverage to communicate health information more accurately? What what would you say to this audience, you know, what what can they do? What's the message of it could happen here and what role can we all play in positive change? Well, I think a few things. I think number 1 You know, I think our theory of change at ADL, we kind of have a heuristic that we use to talk about what happens, but we basically think it's crucial to interrupt intolerance when it happens. Like when hate is allowed to persist, it kind of can take hold and harden and becomes a kind of conventional wisdom. And all of us have the capacity to push back. 
So the kind of heuristic we use to talk about how does one push back, whether it's an industry or an individual, right? Whether it's a firm or a family, how do you do it? Number one, speak out. Like they say, when you see something, say something, Jim. So when, when you hear hate, whether it's in the at the proverbial water cooler or in the Zoom room or uh, on the playing field or at the dinner table, you got to interrupt it when it happens. And especially, Jim, if you're like a liberal and you see progressive saying something, like call it out. If you're a conservative and you see other conservatives saying something, you know, speak up. I think it is critical that we recognize that even our own tribe can make mistakes, you know, and, and resisting the kind of re- resisting the reductionism of the kind of tribal mentality is really important. So again, whether it's offline or online, speak out. Number two, share facts. We say this a lot, like dial down the drama. Like we don't need crazy, you know, uh, hysterical people. We need less of that, more of doing unto others. And we think, you know, look, I don't believe in cancel culture, Jim. I believe in council culture. So even when someone makes a mistake, even when someone errs, before you excommunicate them, like embrace them and see, help them understand why what they did was wrong and give them the opportunity because we're all human. Like we may be made in the image of God, but none of us are God. Like the, the, the reality is we all have to seek to do better, whether it's a more perfect union or a better human being. So we think it's important to number one, speak out. Number two, share facts. And then number three, Jim, show strength. Like don't, again, don't lean back, lean in. Be an ally if you will, especially when it's not your issue on the hand at hand. When it's, if you are like, look, I'm a white person, but I don't think racism is just a problem of black people. It's my problem too. And I'm a straight person, but homophobia isn't just the problem of LGBTQ people. It's my problem too. And I'm a Jewish person, but anti-Semitism isn't just my problem. It's the problem of non-Jews too. So showing strength is about being there for others which again, I think it's back to the golden rule in many ways. So what can your audience do? Speak out, share facts, show strength. Yeah, all that's important. And I think what you're saying is it's not political. You know, this is not a political point one way or the other. And, you know, hate is a strong emotion. And I've seen, you know, many situations where the most hating folks educated or you know dealt with the right way can go quickly not so quickly but can convert yeah you know it's a strong emotion that you know once they understand the impact of it i think where we have the problem is this middle ground group that you know turn away or you know what are they the indifference you know the indifference is really what's you know, probably the most dangerous to your point about January 6th. It's like, you know, you would think of most people would look at that and go, this, this just isn't good for us, you know, mm-hmm. but most people are like, ah, it doesn't impact me day to day. It's not really that important. Um, those were the conditions, right. That created what you saw in the thirties and forties in Europe. Yeah. I mean, the challenge in front of us, Jim, is really quite great. I mean, I am, look, I believe in American exceptionalism. This is the most vibrant, 
the most resilient, the most extraordinary democracy in the history of the world. I don't know if we've ever had an example of a country that was founded on an idea, certainly not in our present time, that was founded on an idea, an idea that can, it's admittedly flawed, but seeks to be better. Like that is extraordinary. Not that there aren't other amazing countries out there, but I, America's ability to reinvent itself is, is renowned. That being said, we are coming to what could be a very perilous moment. We're at ADL, we're tracking well over a hundred extremists running for office across the country, not just for like U.S. Senate, but in some cases for local school board or the library commission. Mm -hmm. And these are people who are promoting things like the 2020 election was rigged when it wasn't, or promoting that, you know, all Democrats are pedophiles. They're not. Anti-Zionists who say that all Zionists are Jews are trying to oppress people. They're not. But we have to find a way to bring the country together. Because if we don't get this right, like I said before, this is our plan B. Not for us as a minority in this country, but for the world itself. So I think we're at a perilous moment. What gives me hope is the younger generation is more tolerant, is more worldly, is more engaged than any prior. What gives me hope is our country's unbelievable uh, capacity for adaptation and resilience and reinvention. And what gives me hope is that this country's been through tough times before. I mean, we've been through economic tumult, global conflict, civil war. By the way, not too long ago in the 1970s, the police, if you go back to like the demonstrations at Kent State, the police were shooting protesters in the back as they ran away. (laughs) So we have seen police state-sponsored violence before against peaceful protesters. It, as, as novel as it might seem, it's actually not all new. So we have endured, we have overcome, I think we can do it again, but we need to redouble our efforts right now to preserve our institutions, to sustain our values, and to fight again for this democracy like never before. And we can do that, you know, in our capacity, you know, for, again, for the audience, we tend to focus on our, you know, communicators and marketers, you know, we can play a role in the misinformation and disinformation that is, you know, I think clogging the channel a bit and also helping convene people, getting them together so that they're more human interaction to your point to bring us back to to what makes us common um not what separates us i think those things and it sounds like you you have those three points you made about what we can go out and do let me just pivot a little bit here um you know you're a serial entrepreneur how'd you end up here at the adl i mean you know your background is business and entrepreneurialism. Um, and do you think there's another entrepreneurial challenge in your creative journey or do you just stay here? What's the what's the game plan? Why the ADL and why now? Well, look, I was serving in the West Wing when I got a call about this job. I was working for the president running the innovation office. I had been recruited into the White House. Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't I was living in California. I was an operating partner, private equity firm looking for a business to buy or scale. I mean, 
I wasn't intending. I, I, I just didn't think my path was public service. And I got a call and I met the president and he was very compelling. And I felt blessed to have the chance to serve the, our country and think about how could we, you know, I did economic and domestic policy, nothing like I'm doing now. And then I got a call about ADL and admittedly, I thought the call, you know, I did not expect the call. I mean, when I came to this job, you know, ADL is a civil rights organization. I'm not even a lawyer, Jim, right? I'm an MBA by trade. I know how to build brands and run businesses, not how to manage programs and drive a nonprofit. I never worked in the nonprofit industry before. I'm Jewish, but so what? I'd never worked in the Jewish community before. So for me, this, this was an interesting call, but I took the call and I took the meeting because I know about ADL and its history. And as I mentioned before, as the husband of a political refugee, as the grandson of a refugee, both of whom had to flee their countries because of religious and ethnic persecution, like fighting religious and ethnic persecution here today really matters to me. So I took the meeting thinking that maybe I can share some ideas. I didn't think the job was for me. One thing led to another and here I am today. Uh, but like, I'll say it feels like such a privilege. I mean, the ADL has been part of the fabric of, of civil society for well over a hundred years. Everything from marching in Selma to pushing back against Joe McCarthy to being there for women's rights. I mean, the work that ADL has done over the decades has been extraordinary. So I feel blessed to have the chance to be a part of it. I really do. What comes next? I don't know. I'm worried. I'm kind of worried about less about tomorrow and more about today. I've got such big challenges to take on here at ADL with the rise of anti-Semitism, the surge in hate, the threats to our democracy. All I can do is focus on that right now. And I'll worry about what comes next later. So what do you need from us? Is it, you know, volunteerism, money, and, and also, you know, tell us that and also tell us who do you think's out there representing and doing things well and right, you know, give us some, you know, sort of role models and examples that we should follow. Vis-a-vis -vis what? Role models in terms well, of... you know, if you look at the business community, you know, who's standing up and doing the right thing? Mm. You know, who... I know I've heard you're a fan of Pfizer CEO Albert Berla and his leadership role. And yeah. he's been showing up. Um, you know, what do you think business leaders like Dr. Berla can do to help turn the tide here? And what do you need sure. us to do? with respect directly to the ADL or are there other organizations that, you know, you partner with that we should be supporting? Well, I definitely, I mean, my mantra is innovation and partnerships. Partnerships are critical because we can't do it alone. And again, unless you take a company like maybe Amazon or, or something, I mean, few are so vertically integrated, they can do everything themselves. Everybody needs partners. And in the nonprofit world, that's not always in vogue, but I think it's really important. So, First, who are the leaders that I admire? I deeply admire Dr. Borla. I mean, at the end of the day, there's no silver bullet that's going to stop hate. We need all hands on deck. We need like whole of society strategies. And what he did working with the government and with the research community through Operation Warp Speed to get, you know, drugs to market was, it's still extraordinary. I'm reading his book right now, Moonshot. I mean, I think his leadership and putting the public good first without formal contracts, without long written agreements, agreeing to work with the manufacturers. It's just 
unbelievable. I really admire his courage quite a bit. So there's one person I, I really think very highly of. Um, you know, second person I think you know incredibly highly of, and I've had some really amazing interactions with Steve Huffman, the CEO of Reddit. Reddit's one of those social media platforms and lots of problems, but Steve, since coming in as CEO, has doubled down on pushing back against hate. He has, you know, angered some of the Reddit community for the strong stance he's taken, but he's shut down these toxic subreddits. He's tried to make the platform better moderated, if you will, healthier. And that takes a lot of courage. I really appreciate him. He's just done a remarkable job. Um, third uh, entrepreneur that I think a lot of corporate leaders that I really admire, just a great deal, is uh, Hamdi Ulukaya, the CEO of Chobani. He is a self-made person, you know, an immigrant from uh, Turkey who built his business, hired immigrants and locals, and through the dint of his creativity and his distribution and his drive, he turned Chobani. He created the category of Greek yogurt. He made Chobani the most popular product like on the shelf in grocery in this in yogurt. It's unbelievable. While all the while sticking to his organic roots, sticking to his human values, he's a remarkable leader too. So those are three leaders I really respect. How can your community help? Well, number one, again, I think you got to lean in. There's lots of great organizations doing important work these days. I am, as it might not be a surprise, a little partial to ADL. <laughs> and we always need donations. We're always looking for volunteers. And with 25 offices across the country, there's tons of opportunities for people to engage. So if you have a creative mind, if you've got like labor you want to offer, if you want to get involved in a leadership role and join a board, you just want to write a check and support the work, there's a lot of different ways you can find out the office near you at our website, you know, adl.org or adl.org. Well, great. You know, I, I think, you know, this has been a great conversation. I think possibly the title of the book needs to change from it could happen here to it's happening here. Yeah. The urgency is now is what you're telling us. And yeah. we got to get up and out and active, you know, in order to preserve the democracy we all, you know, love so much and, and benefit from. Um, is anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. I appreciate the thorough questions and enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, we could go on, I think, for a really long time, brother. Um, anyway, it's uh, great to see you. Appreciate it. I think a lot of folks, out of, Aaron, I know we probably won't have to edit this one too hard because uh, I think we nailed it and uh, look forward to continued conversation, action, and uh, really making a difference. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, guys. Have a great afternoon. All right. Thank you. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.